Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today indeed is a solemn day on our Jewish calendar. Today, the 27th of Nisan is commemorated as Yom HaShoah. It was a day that was set aside for Jews to remember the atrocities of the Holocaust. And of course, we have to remember in order never to forget. And while we speak here now at West Park Cemetery, there's a commemoration, a special ceremony happening in order to remember this. And if I could quote the words of one of my favorite authors of the past year, the late Eddie Jaku, who wrote the best-selling memoir, The Happiest Man on Earth. This is a man who suffered the atrocities of the Holocaust. And he wrote this book just in the past year during lockdown last year. And then he passed away subsequently. He was around 100 years old when he wrote this book. And he said he will never be able to forgive and forget the horrors that he suffered while he was a prisoner at the Auschwitz death camp. He said that although he was lucky, it was a miracle that he survived. But he will never understand how a nation who produced people like Mozart and Beethoven had become a nation of murderers. Here is a person who on the one hand chooses never to forget, as is the motto of today, that we have to remember, that we have to do all in our ability to perpetuate it, just like we just came from Pesach, and our people are people, yes, we've moved forward, we've moved on, we have prospered and succeeded, but we haven't forgotten. It's 3,334 years since our liberation from slavery in Egypt. It's something we haven't forgotten, and it's the only way we could prevent it from ever happening again. And if we look at society, if we see the way life goes on, it is so easy to forget and so easy for such atrocities to be committed again. So as we commemorate this day, and in Israel we know that there's the sounding of the siren today on Yom HaShoah, which stops all traffic, all cars and pedestrians stop throughout Israel for two minutes, moments of silent devotion, thinking, reflecting on this day. For us as well, here in South Africa, it's our time to reflect, to think about its messages and lessons. And those who are present here at West Park at the ceremony have a opportunity to hear firsthand from Holocaust survivors we have to realize that although this is a time that we reflect on the past, and in fact, for many people, particularly millennials today, the lack of Shoah knowledge sadly applies to a lot, a lot of people. Many people are worried about many other things and forgetting about the past. Now, it was, it, it's very interesting to note that we can learn the lessons for today about what happened in the Holocaust and we have to apply them. But it's not just about being stuck into the, in the past. Our history is one that tells us to be forward thinking as well. 
We have a mandate to be a light unto the nations. We have a duty to teach humanity that all human beings are created equally in the image of God. We are all indispensable to God's plan for this world. And when humanity internalizes this truth, then hatred, animosity, jealousy, all that will be removed from the hearts of all people and will be able to live together in tranquility, in harmony, in shalom, in true peace, which is what we strive for, which is what we pray for, not only anticipate, but do everything we can to make it a reality. And what's very interesting is that in the Torah portion this week, the portion of Achrei, we read, the Torah tells us that there's a, a fascinating verse that I that to me highlights a very important part of moving forward on this day. And that is a verse where it says, God tells us, you should observe my statutes, that's mishpatai and my ordinances, which we should do all the commandments, we should observe the Torah mitzvahs. But here's the Untashashura. Vachai Bahem Ani Hashem. You should live by them. I am Hashem. To me, I think that's a very powerful message and lesson on this day, Yom HaShoah, that gives the unique Jewish approach on how we move forward and how we establish a state of Israel and how Jews the world over are able to continue after the atrocities of the Holocaust. As the Talmud puts it, we should live by them, we should not die by them. We don't look for a martyr's death. You have to understand the significance of this cannot be underestimated. There are many other religions out there. I'm not interested in getting into the details of any others. I don't know enough about my own to talk about others. But there's one thing for certain. We've seen people who could blow up others. We've seen those who are killing, murdering infidels, and it's sacred to them. And that is not the Jewish way. And this is something that's not new. This has been going on for millennia of ancient religions. Even the Egyptians who enslaved us, their religion back then, and not necessarily to be confused at all with modern Egyptians, but for them, the symbols, the pyramids, these were gigantic tombs celebrating the deceased. One of the Torah's first tasks was to destroy the connection between civilization and, of course, religion and death. Judaism always affirmed belief in an afterlife. In fact, we know the soul never dies. And if I could take this opportunity to invite everyone to join us for our very exciting and fascinating new course called Journey of the Soul. It's going to be taking place in a few weeks' time throughout the country. We'll be offering it at many locations where we'll discuss the Jewish perspective on life after death, what happens to the soul when we're, when we're gone from this world. But the preoccupation of Judaism is not about the next world. It's about how we can make this world a better place. And that's why the Torah is largely silent about the afterlife. We find God in life. We find God in love and joy. God is here. God is now. God is life. So the Torah is telling us, 
You should live by the mitzvahs, not to die through the mitzvahs. If your religion creates a culture of death, you have lost the way. Terror in the name of God is a desecration of the name of God. So we have to realize the word tells us that every single mitzvah, that every single commandment is here to enhance life, to celebrate life, to enrich, to expand, to deepen life. The mitzvah here is to make us live and not to make us die. Judaism is the divine blueprint to live life to its fullest. My friends, indeed, to suck the marrow out of life, to get drunk on life, to say l'chaim on life itself. What a beautiful way to live. Indeed, today we commemorate, we recall, we honor those who perished, but we also realize we are not going to allow them to be lost. When somebody suggested to the Rebbe after the Holocaust that we each leave an empty chair at our Seder tables to recall a lost martyr of the Holocaust. The Rebbe said, I like the idea, but I'd like to take it a step further. There are so many Jews who are lost to the modern Holocaust of assimilation, of, of lack of involvement in Judaism called it the fifth child, because we have the four children in the Haggadah. The fifth child is the one who's completely ignorant, who doesn't even know to show up. And so he said, invite that child, fill that chair. We can't just live in the past and the death. We have to move forward. We have to say l'chaim to life itself. That's our religion. That's what the Torah tells us dance to the core of life itself. And that's what we do today. We know the laws of Shabbos itself. <coughs> the laws tell us, what does it mean to live by them? It's one of the Talmudic proofs that you're allowed to desecrate, to violate the Shabbos. In fact, it's not a desecration. It is one of the sanctified ways of observing Shabbos is to break Shabbos. One of the very rules of keeping Shabbos is to transgress the laws of Shabbos itself in order to save a life. So that's not a desecration. It's not violating Shabbos. It's in fact upholding Shabbos by saving a life. And that's why you'll see your fellow community members who are volunteers in Hatzalah might be carrying their radios or telephones in them on Shabbos, even though they're Shabbos observant Jews, because they are following the commandment, Vachai Bahem to live by them, not to die by it. And this, the Mishnah tells us, how do we know that pikuach nefech doiches ha-Shabbos, says the Gemara, because this very verse that tells us, v'chai behem, to live by it, behem, we are not to die. The Torah is here to give us life. We have to do everything it takes to perpetuate life. If a mitzvah might cause death, even if there's the slightest chance that it might, God does not want that mitzvah. So this is the rule in Jewish law. We have to violate every mitzvah in order to save a life. The Kohen God of the high priest may be standing in the Holy of Holies on the most sacred day of the year on Yom Kippur in communion with the divine. If he hears 
that there's an infant in danger, he must throw everything away. Stop, run out of the sacred space that he's in, and go try to save that baby. From eating pork to cooking on Shabbos, from drinking on Yom Kippur to eating pizza on Pesach, from canceling a bris milah circumcision to swearing falsely, whatever it takes, all sins become obligatory. You hear me? Obligatory, obligated, if as a result, a life might be saved. And to appreciate the significance of this, I want to share with you that the Hassam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, he presents a marvelous interpretation to another verse in the Torah. One of the seven verses that, that are recited in the Talmud as a proof that saving a life overrides Shabbos. Now, the Hassam Sofer himself was one of the most illustrious rabbis of the 18th and 19th centuries. He was known by his work, Hassam Sofer, which means the seal of the scribe, but it's actually an acronym for Chidushe Toras Moshe Sofer, the novelty, the novel teachings of Moshe Sofer, that was his name. And he was the rabbi in the city of Pressburg in Bratislava today, which is part of the Austrian Empire. And the Hassam Sofer's published works include many more than a thousand responsa, questions, answers, commentaries on the Torah called Torah's Masha, a tremendous commentary on the Talmud and many religious uh, poetry. And the context of this verse is somewhat strange. God tells Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses that is, that he has conferred upon Betzalel. He was the, call him the architect, the interior designer of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, that God has bestowed upon him the prowess and wisdom to be able to construct the sanctuary, which was nuanced, it was exquisite, it was dazzling in its brilliance and craftsmanship. Right after that comes a verse that says, God says to Moshe, Le'ata Dabrel b'nei Yisrael, you, Moshe, speak to the children of Israel, Lamar, you should say to them, Ach es shabsoisai tishmaru, you must keep, the word ach means only, you should keep my Shabbases, ki oisi beini uveneichem l'doresechem, because it is a sign between me and you for all your generations. To know that I am the Lord to make you holy. Now, what is the connection? What is the juxtaposition of these two topics? First, we talk about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, how Betzalel was the architect, the interior designer. And from there we go on to conveying the laws of keeping Shabbos. Says Rashi, Although I have mandated you to command them concerning the work of the Mishkan, that the Jews are to build this magnificent tabernacle for God in the wilderness, do not let it seem that you may easily set aside Shabbos because of your involvement in the work of building the Mishkan. Although you'll be rushed to perform the work of the Mishkan quickly, Shabbos should not be set aside because of it. All instances where it says the word ach only imply limitations. So Talmud tells us they are exclusive. 
to exclude Shabbos from the work of the Mishkan. Meaning, on Shabbos, the Jews needed to seize all work for the sanctuary. As important as it was to build a tabernacle, a sanctuary for God, they had to pause on Friday as the sun would set until the stars came out on Saturday night. But what does this verse mean when it says, Ki ois hi that it's a sign between me and you for generations. To know that I'm Hashem, the God, your God, to make you holy. How is it through Shabbos that we get to know that we are holy? Says the Chassam Sofer, a beautiful insight. What was the greatest project ever undertaken? No question, it was the building of the cosmos, the creation of the universe. Think about it. After all, that's the mother of any other project, big or small, undertaken by na- man or nature. Look at the universe that we inhabit. Our observable universe is a sphere around 92 billion light years. We know of roughly a octillion. That's one followed by 24 zeros, planets in the universe. The human body alone contains some 100 trillion cells. Within each cell is a nucleus. Within each nucleus is a double copy of the human genome. Each genome contains 3.1 billion letters of genetic code, enough if transcribed to fill a library of 5,000 books. The greatest miracle of all time without any close seconds is the universe. It's the miracle of all miracles. And yet the Torah teaches there is something even greater than the universe. What is that? Well, in the beginning of Genesis, how many verses are dedicated to describe how God created the world? The entire world. Right? Go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's only 30 one verses. That's it. Yet, when it comes to the tabernacle, to the Mishkan, we have hundreds and hundreds of verses. Half the book of Shemos is describing the building, the architecture, the design, the implementation. Then you go to the book of Ayikra that we're currently reading, the book of Leviticus. There it describes the service of the temple. So, so many more verses are describing the Mishkan and the creation of the world. So 31 verses to describe how God created this entire universe. And yet so much more to describe a little home. I mean, it it seems profoundly strange. The universe spans some 176 trillion billion miles. It's an awesomely complex structure. After millennia of research, We have yet to scratch the surface of its untold depth and unbound mysteries. We have not even mastered the secrets embedded in a single cell. The tabernacle, the Mishkan, on the other hand, was just, what is it, 150 feet long. What is that? 50 meters long? 75 feet wide. 25 meters wide. Was a small, call it a mobile shtibel, 
a mitzvah tank. Why would the Torah be so expansive about the creation of a humble, yes, albeit splendorous tent in the universe, and yet so terse about the creation of the cosmos with all of its infinite depth, majesty, grandeur? Does that make any sense? And the answer is that the universe is the home God makes for man, while the sanctuary is the home that man makes for God. It may be smaller and simpler, but it's still more significant and more prominent. And therefore, as Rabbi Moshe Sofer did, quoted the Mishnah that says, or maybe it's a Medrash, that the universe, it says, about God's creating the world, biyado, as if God created the, the world, my hand founded the earth. But when it comes to the temple, it says God's hands, God's hands in the plural, trying to remember the verse, maybe it's Mikdash Hashem Kainanu Yedecha, your hands established God's temple. So the temple is taking that much of a greater precedence. Even the construction of the sanctuary, though, had to be suspended for the observance of Shabbos. Even to construct the sanctuary, we may not desecrate Shabbos. The sanctity and preciousness of Shabbos trumps the sanctuary which trumps the universe. This tells us something about the infinite greatness of Shabbos. For even the sanctuary, which serves a God home on earth, is not as holy as Shabbos. The day of rest, which transcends the entire creation, the entire universe, even God's home in our world. Shabbos is a day, an oasis in time. It's a day of intimacy with the divine, beyond the world with God himself. But wait, there's something even holier than Shabbos as we discussed. And for that, even Shabbos itself needs to be shattered and destroyed. And what is that? My friends, that's you, the human soul. Shabbos must be violated to save a life. Even if there exists only 1% a chance that a life might be saved by desecrating Shabbos just to prolong a life by a few minutes. All the laws of Shabbos must be broken for the sanctity of life trumps even the sanctity of Shabbos, which trumps even the sanctity of the temple, which trumps the very act of creation, the origin of all existence. We'll be right back in just a moment. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here at 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivman. And today, Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Memorial Day, we recall, we remember the six million Kedoshim, the martyrs whose lives have been brutally murdered in the Holocaust. And not only do we remember, we sanctify their names we recall each and every one of them realizing their lives were snuffed out of this earth. What a difference they could have made, how many more years they could have had, how many more Jewish people 
could have occupied this very world and unfortunately are no longer here with us. With that, I shared with you a thought from the Chassam Sofer who said, the Chaybahem, the Torah portion this week tells us we have to live by the commandments, by the mitzvahs, not to die by them, which means we have to seize every opportunity to perpetuate their lives. So the Chassam Sofer says, this is the meaning of the words, Shema Yisrael. Every single Jew knows these words, these time hallowed words, these holy, this holy prayer that we say every day, which so many martyrs uttered as their final words as they were shot dead or brought into the crematorium. And so he says, if you look at the word Shema, it is an acronym of three words. The word Shema spells Shabbos Mikdash Olam. The Shabbos, the temple, and the world. These are in a descending order, he tells us. The three most precious items of existence. And yet, above all three of them is Shema Yisrael is the individual Jew himself. For the Jew is literally one with God in his very essence. Yisrael is part of Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And then, this is the beautiful understanding of the verse as the Chassam Sofer taught it. You should speak to the children of Israel and tell them, Ach Eshab Shmaru. Only keep my Shabbos. What does that mean? He says this verse teaches us that Shabbos trumps the construction of the sanctuary. And this itself brings out in the most beautiful and potent way the holiness of Israel. What does it tell us? It tells us even Shabbos cannot interfere with saving a life. To know that I, Hashem, make you holy is what the verse says. The sanctuary is holy. Yes, Shabbos is holy. But the deepest holiness and sanctity lie in you, in each individual Jew. Your existence and life embodies the profoundest divine holiness beyond the universe, beyond the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, and even beyond Shabbos. This, my friends, is a very important message that we all must take on this day. You know, a young teenager once came to a rabbi. I'm a small person in the face of a large universe. I'm one among seven billion. Not Einstein, not Biden, not Ramaphosa, just a regular simple kid, not brilliant, not super athletic, smart, witty. My test marks are average. What's the purpose of my life? I'll never make it big. I'll never become Mozart, Kent. And the rabbi responded, just a few decades ago, there lived a great symphony conductor, an Italian maestro named Arturo Toscanini. And he led concerts all over the world. 
He's one of the most acclaimed musicians in the late 19th and 20th century. He was renowned for his intensity, his perfectionism, his ear for orchestral detail and sonority. And his photographic memory just gave him this edge, this advantage over any other conductor in his time. Toscanini had a biographer who would interview him periodically over the years as a part of a major work he was writing on his life. One evening, he called Toscanini and told him that he would be in town the next night. And he asked if he could come to Toscanini's house to interview him. Well, Toscanini answered that he's not available because he's doing something very special that would require absolute concentration and focus, and he cannot be interrupted. Maestro, the biographer said, if I may ask, what are you doing that's so special? He said, there's a concert being played overseas. I used to be the conductor of that symphony orchestra, but I cannot be there this year. So I'm going to listen on a shortwave radio and hear how the other conductor leads the orchestra. I don't want any interruptions whatsoever, Toscanini told him. Well, the biographer gave him his word. He said, Maestro, it would be my greatest delight, honor, pleasure to watch how you listen to a concert that's played by an orchestra that you used to lead. I promise I won't say anything. I promise you I will sit on the other side of the room very quietly and just listen. So once he gave his word, when he promised to be perfectly quiet, then Toscanini acquiesced and allowed him to be present. Well, he let him come. And the next night, the biographer came, sat quietly, while Toscanini led, listened to the concert, which lasted almost an hour. Finally, when it ended, the biographer remarked, how was that? Wasn't it magnificent? And Toscanini said, well, not really. And so why not? There were supposed to be 120 musicians, Toscanini told him, including 15 violinists. But I could tell that only 14 of them actually played. Now, the biographer thought Toscanini's probably joking. How could he know from 6,000 miles away over shortwave radio that one of the violinists was missing. The biographer had his doubts, but didn't want to say anything and went home. The next morning though, he had to find out for himself. So he called the concert hall overseas. He asked for the music director and inquired how many musicians were supposed to have been playing that night before the, before the, before this, at this performance. Well, the concert hall director told him that they were supposed to have 120 musicians, including 15 violinists, but only 14 had shown up. And you can imagine the biographer's amazement. He rushed back to Toscanini and said, Sir, I owe you an apology. I thought you were just making it up the other night, but please tell me, tell me, how could you have known that one violinist was missing? And this is what Toscanini told him, is the difference between you and me. You're a part of the audience, and to the audience, everything sounds wonderful. But I'm the conductor, 
and the conductor knows every note of music that has to be played. When I realized that certain notes were not being played, I knew without a doubt that one of the violinists was missing. And so the rabbi turned to this teenager and said, Judaism teaches that we are all musicians in the grand cosmic symphony of history. Maybe to the average, it doesn't make a difference how you live, what you do every day, how you work on your moral, ethical, spiritual life. But I want you to know, said the rabbi, to the conductor of the universe, of the world symphony, who knows every note of music that is supposed to be played, who appreciates the, mu- the unique note that only you can produce through your life, to him, it makes a grand difference. Every moment of your life is an indispensable note in the Divine Symphony. I watched a video the other day of a man who came to the Rebbe with a dilemma. He said his father was 84 years old. And, you know, I deal with senior citizens myself all day. So this particular video seemed of great interest to me. And I saw a very powerful message that the Rebbe said to this man. As the man articulated his dilemma, he conveyed his concerns to the Rebbe that his father was unwell. And his father really wanted to go to shul to be part of the community. But he was wheelchair bound and his father was was depressed and downtrodden. What could he do for his father? And you watch this video. If anyone wants a link, just message me. I'll forward you the link. It's just powerful what the Rebbe says to him. And the Rebbe tells this man, explain to your father that every single Jew has a mission from God, which you do when you perform a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah in this world, You are fulfilling your divine mission. You're, so to speak, doing a favor to God. Tell your father, the Rebbe says to this man, that every mitzvah he performs is a gift he's giving to God. How could he give up such a mission and opportunity? You think about this. I think the Rebbe tells him a little bit more. He gives him a suggestion about putting on tefillin, giving charity, other mitzvahs. Each one of us, is indispensable to God's plan and mission for this world. Each one of us has so much to achieve, to accomplish, that how can we give up on that? This is our purpose, our function, our unique mission in this world. Every single one of us has the ability to fulfill that mission in this world, to realize that we are here to make a difference. And now, at this day that we commemorate the, the, the Shoah, the Holocaust, how six million of our people who were butchered, who could have continued their legacies onward, and are no longer here to be able to do so, that makes a big difference. And realizing that each one of us can make our difference here And so we have to realize, what difference can I make? Every one of us has tremendous ability. Every single day, we are given so many opportunities to make a difference. What difference will I make today is the question. And I 
beseech each one of us. How are we going to make that difference? You know, there's another very famous story of Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues after seeing fox and roaming on the Temple Mount after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And Rabbi Akiva laughs and his colleagues cry. There's many, many interpretations of that story. But to me, one of the most profound interpretations is that Rabbi Akiva felt that we can't just look back at the past, at the tragedies, and cry about it. Yes, there's a lot to cry about. Rabbi Akiva felt that he has to infuse life into the future. He has to bring joy and celebration to those who survive so that their future will be instilled with less oi and more joy. And that indeed is our key to survival in the future. Because there's another very famous story of Rabbi Akiva and the fish and the fox. You remember that story where the fish are swimming backward and forward and the fox says, come across with me. Said Rabbi Akiva to his colleague that there are foxen all over. There are foxen who are trying to dissuade us. There are foxen who are constantly trying to detour us different ways. That's the that's the persona of the fox. If you observe a fox, you notice how cleverly they hunt. They pounce on their prey unexpectedly with great precision, with alacrity. They're wily, they're sly, they're crafty. And so the fox represents that distraction to Rabbi Akiva. He saw life as, yes, there are many distractions. There are many foxen trying to get us off the way. But we who have unfortunately experienced many, many tumultuous moments in our history, we have to realize not to get caught by the sly fox, but to realize what is our mission? What is our purpose? What is our duty? What are we here for? And indeed, I think if we look at the past century, we as the Jewish people have been a tremendous light unto the world. But we have to realize not to get lost. In what way are we being a light unto the world? We've been a tremendous blessing and Israel has been a blessing for us. But sometimes when we get caught up by the sly fox, comes at a heavy price. Sometimes we lose ourselves in the process. Like in that parable of Rabbi Akiva, the fox sometimes manages to get us off the path because the water, as the fish describes and says, I forgot to tell you that part of the parable because of course everyone knows it, right? Is that the, the fish needs the water to survive and the water symbolizes 
Torah, Judaism. So as Rabbi Akiva understood, we need Torah like the fish needs water. Torah is our battery, it's our engine. It constitutes our identity, our very consciousness. Often in our history, we have sometimes used our Jewish gifts, but sometimes used it in the wrong way. To bring holiness and godliness into the world through Torah and mitzvahs, that is our mission. And in the process of trying to pacify others, we sometimes give up our own identity. We don't always have to fit in. We don't always have to, you know, sadly there's this other Holocaust that others talk about of losing our own identity. And for that, we don't need, the Nazis don't need to do anything. We're doing a pretty good job at this Holocaust ourselves. And that's a, a, a very current contemporary problem. We have to realize, what are we here for? And so, if we go back to our purpose, to our mission, why somebody's asking, why a fox? Well, I, I, there's a beautiful symbolism of it. You see, the others wept, not only because of the physical desolation of the Holy Temple, where there were foxes roaming, they cried over the fact that the Holy of Holies of the Jewish people, the sacredness and depth of the Jewish soul of our mind was being caught up by the clever foxen, the materialism, the animalistic tendencies of the world. Sadly, our influence and integration have not served us that well. The foxes somehow caught us out sometimes. And so Rabbi Akiva realized that by bringing laughter, joy, enthusiasm, passion, excitement, with that, he could revive the the survivors, the rest of us. I think that's what we need today. That's the message of what we discussed. We have to live by the Torah, by its messages. And thereby, we can ensure not only the survival, not only that Judaism survives, but that we will thrive. And please God, the lightness, the brightness that we bring to the world will shine forevermore.